Ronnie always reminds me that God inhabits the praise of his people. It's awesome to be able to come in here and praise God through song. It's also awesome to be able to praise God just by sharing and, and speaking truth. And I, I'm excited that today Joyce and I have three of our grandchildren here. They were here. I think they're somewhere out there. Uh, they've been with us. Hannah, I see you and Will. Lydia must have already gone back. You know, I want to just, uh, I want to thank them for being great kids. Not every day I get to say that because they don't get to be with us every day. I thank God this morning that at least three, the older three of my five grandkids are saved. They know Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. With time, I think Lydia, uh, or not Lydia, but Caroline and Josh are going to make it there <laughs> as well. Uh, we had them all the other day over at the house, and it was a blessing to be able to have them together. We don't get to do that often. But um, I feel blessed today, and I want you to be a, a blessed person as we join together in worshiping the Lord. My prayer today is that God would show up, be real and powerful for you, and speak to your heart and help you to grow even closer to him than you've ever been before. Two weeks ago in my sermon, The Joy Perspective, I quoted Dr. Tony Evans with this phrase that he spoke. He said, a nation is going to stand or fall based on whether God's rules have permeated the culture. And when he says God's rules, he's talking about God's commandments, the commandments that he's given us. I uh, agreed with that statement very heartily. And, uh, and because of my agreement with that, that was one of the things that kind of scared me about our nation. Because you see, we not only have parts of our nation today refusing to obey the law of the land, but by and large, our nation ignores the law of God. America is not a godly nation. The Bible is not our favorite book anymore. You see, God's rules only matter where God rules. Think about that. If God is not ruling in our land, then his rules don't make any difference. And I think it's where a lot of people are today. Solomon said these words. He said, godliness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. When Paul wrote one of his letters to Timothy, he said, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. And that is a task that every one of us as believers should do. He said, as you make your request, plea, plead for God's mercy upon them and give thanks. Pray that God's mercy will be upon the people that you're praying for. And then, then give thanks to the Lord because what you ask for, God blesses you with. Notice verse 2, he said, pray this way for kings and all others who are in authority so that we can live in peace and quietness, in godliness and in dignity. Dr. Evans goes on to write these words. He says, we need to pray that leaders will become sensitive to God's way of doing things because a culture can be a reasonable place to live if it is informed by biblical principles. If it has been taught the truth of God's word and about his commandments, then we can live in peace and it can be a good place to live. The Bible says that God sets up and he deposes kings or rulers or presidents or whatever kind of leader a nation might have. Daniel says something about that. He says, praise the name of God 
forever and ever, for he alone has all wisdom and power. He determines the course of world events, and he removes kings, and he sets others on the throne. I think that's why the psalmist wrote these words. He said, I will speak to kings. In other words, whenever I come in contact with rulers from other nations, I will speak to kings about your decrees, and I will not be ashamed. You see, King David was well aware that a society, for a society to be peaceful and lawful, it has to be run by God's rules. Now, that was something that the nation of Israel knew. Moses even wrote these words about the kings that would sit on that throne. He said, when he sits on the throne as a king, he must copy these laws on a scroll for himself in the presence of the Levitical priest. He must always keep a copy of the law with him and read it daily as long as he lives. And that way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of this law. You can see as we read that verse of scripture that the king of Israel was required to, uh, to have God's word with him every day and he was required to read it. Well, folks, that's, that's not something that's just good for the king of Israel or for the king of any land. It's something that we all should be doing, reading God's word on a regular basis. Amen? How many of you brought your Bible today? Don't raise your hand. Just think about it. A lot of people don't read God's word. We've got... There are more people have Bibles in America than probably any other land in the world, and yet more Bibles in America go unread than probably any other place. We need to be reading and studying the Word of God. We need to know how to obey, and, and we need to know the Word and obey the Word. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 21, Isaiah says that the Lord will be our mighty one. He will be like a wide river of protection that no enemy can cross. I love that. Think about that. He said, for the Lord is our judge. He is our lawgiver. He is our king and he will be or he will care for us and he will save us. Folks, why is it important for us to learn to, to function under biblical authority to know God's rules? Why is that so important? I want to I try to give you a little bit of an illustration this morning and uh, I, I'm going to need an assistant. Can I, can I borrow you, Mason? Can you help me this morning? I want, I want to see how good you can, can draw, okay? You didn't know I was going to do this, did you? Okay? So this hasn't been set up, has it? All right. I want you to take this marker here, and I want you to draw me a straight line from right across. Connect the dots. Can you draw a straight line? Probably. Probably. We're fixing to find out, aren't we? All right. Hey, you're good. Okay. All right. Draw me a straight line now. Keep it straight. Oh, he's a lefty. He's a Benjamite. Did y'all know that? All right. Straight line. There you go. Boy, you're doing good. You have connected the dots. It's not straight? Well, well let, let me show you how to draw a straight line. Can I, can I help you draw a straight line? No, you, you, I'm going to help you. But see, I, we're going to connect the dots here, okay? I'm not. I'm going to connect the dots. All right, you just draw. 
Now, is that one straight? What's the difference? That is, that is a ruler. And rulers are important, aren't they? Okay, you, you can be seated. You did pretty good. Let's give him a hand. Do you, do you get the idea? When you try to live your life on your own, it's hard to be straight. You got that? But when you have a ruler, when you have God, when you have God's rules to help you live straight, the kind of life he wants you to live, you can live it straight. Y'all see that? That's why we need to know God's word. That's why we need to let God rule in our life. God's rules are, are clearly spelled out in the word, in the Bible. It's, they're there. You don't have to be a lawyer or a theologian to be able to understand the word of God. But you do have to read it. And you do have to study it. You, you can't learn God's principles by, by osmosis or close association. You, you have to open up the word, right? You have to feed off of it. You have to read it. You have to understand it. You have to study it. Um, God expects us to know and he expects us to obey his rules. And ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You know, even Jesus uh, took seriously God's word. To say that Jesus uh, looked and, and, and approached Scripture in a very different perspective is, would be a huge understatement. Jesus was not traditional in any way in his interpretation nor in his preaching. His message was really pretty radical if you want to, to really look at what he preached. He, he preached to change people's hearts and not to appease the conscience. He did not fit into the common mold of religious leaders in that day. He cared absolutely nothing about religion. What he cared about was you having a relationship with his heavenly father. There was this huge misconception in Jesus' day that because his preaching and teaching was so different that they thought he was going to come in and, and change everything and do away with the law, but nothing could have been further from the truth. He... Uh, his goal was to help people get on track with God so that they could live the straight life. And that's why he preached the word of God the way that he did. John MacArthur said of him he, that, that Jesus obviously had a high regard for the law, but at the same time he taught things completely contrary to the tradition. His teachings did not lower scriptural standards, but, but upheld them in every way. He not only put God's standards at the height where they belong, but he lived at a humanly impossible level. You know as well as I do that every time Jesus went out and preached and, and was healing people and trying to help people come uh, to know him, every time that he did that, he was challenged. And, and every time, he always went straight to Scripture. He lived Scripture. He breathed Scripture. He shared Scripture every time that he could. And I want you to look at something that he says here in Matthew 17 about his father's word. He said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, he says, I came to fulfill them. Jesus is very clear and he begins with this statement to refute the religious leader's wrong understanding of his approach to scripture. And he, he uses this Greek word for abolish. Kataleo is the word and it means to utterly overthrow or to destroy. It's, it's a very strong word in the Greek language. 
I want you to notice how it's used in a couple other places in the Bible. Matthew 24 is one of those passages. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. I can just see them. They're walking along with him and they go, man, doesn't that look, isn't that a beautiful building over there, Lord? Isn't Isn't that amazing? Well, look at what he says. He says, do you see all of these buildings? He said, I assure you that they will be so completely demolished that not one stone will be left on top of another. Now that blew their mind. That's the last thing they wanted to hear. They literally were to the point that they worshiped that building. And Jesus said one day it's going to be destroyed. Well, it was. A.D. 70, Titus, the Roman general, went in and he burned everything that he could burn to the ground. And what he couldn't burn to the ground, which was stone, he literally pulled to the ground. I've walked on that temple mound. There's not much there. that You know, there's nothing there except what the Muslims have built on that foundation. Uh, It was torn literally to the ground. There's another passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians that talks about our our body, uh, our building that we live in. He says, we know that our body, the tent that we live in here on earth, will be destroyed. It's going to die. It's not going to exist forever. It's going to end one day. He said, but when that happens, God, uh, God will have a house for us. It will not be a house made by human hands. Instead, it will be a home in heaven that will last forever. Amen? I'm glad about that. We've got some older folks right now that are struggling, and D-Daddy's one of those. He's not long from experiencing the promise of that passage of Scripture. His body is failing him. His heart is only functioning at about 25%, and I'm not sure his, his liver or his, uh, his kidneys are even working at all right now. He's only breathing about six or, se- six or seven breaths a minute right now. He is slowly, slowly shutting down. Our body will fail us. The basic word here means to tear down, to smash to the ground, to completely obliterate. It means to bring to naught, to render useless, to nullify. That's what they thought Jesus was going to do. But that was not the goal of the Lord. He didn't come to this earth to do away with the law. And here's why. Friends, Jesus, his whole ministry focused on and around the preeminence of Scripture, the, 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 the fact that God's Word is above everything. Now, in his day, all the Scripture that existed was the Old Testament Scripture. But then he came as the living Word of God, and, and we have his story on through the, the rest of the, the Bible we know as the New Testament today. He literally came and he completed God's revelation of himself to mankind. Jesus held Scripture as God's perfect an eternal and holy authoritative word. And he gives us right here in Scripture what we're going to look at today, three very good reasons why he held Scripture as preeminent above all other books and above all other writings. Um, I don't mind telling you, I believe Jesus held that the word of God was above everything, and we should do the same. The Bible, there's no book like the Bible today, amen? It is the word of God to us. It is preeminent above everything. And here's some reasons why. Quite simply, it's because God authored the Bible. 
He authored the Bible. I know there were 40 authors over a period of several thousand years, but God spoke through those men to give us the word that we have today. Look at what Jesus said again. He said, don't misunderstand why I came. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses. He uses the definite article here, the, to be specific about which law he's referring to. He is specifically talking about the law of God. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I want you to notice what Moses wrote about that event back in the book of Exodus in chapter 20 beginning in verse 1. He writes, then God spoke all these words. God spoke. And the words that followed in this passage of Scripture came literally out of the mouth of God. They came, uh, they are the law of God. And notice how he uses the first person pronouns in verse 2 and following. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt where you were slaves. You must not have any other God except me. You must not make for yourself any idol that looks like anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the water below the land. You must not worship or serve any idol because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He says, if you hate me, I will punish your children and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He says in verse 6, but I show kindness to thousands upon thousands who love me and obey my commands. Folks, this is the only real law that matters because there's only one real God. There's only one God. He never changes. He, his, his rules will never change. His rules are never going to change to satisfy the whims of theologians nor the consciousness of cultures. God gave his rules to be obeyed, not to be changed or adapted or modified. They were given to reveal God's will to us and not to appease the wickedness of man's heart. There are two reasons that God gave us the Ten Commandments, very specific reasons. Uh, again, let me say they were not given to save our soul, but they were given to show us just how sinful that we really are. And they were also to help us see just how much we desperately need a Savior. God authored his word. That's what makes it preeminent above all other books. But notice something else about God's word. It was affirmed by the prophets. By the prophets. It's clear as you study the, the work of the prophets that they were to speak and to preach the law of God. They were to warn. They were to uh, admonish and, and make predictions that directly and indirectly were based on the Mosaic law. They spoke for God and their job was to help you and me, people like us, to know and obey God's law. There was an occasion when, when God wanted Mo, uh, Moses to speak to the people and he was trying to lead them out of, the, out of Egypt into the promised land and, and God wanted him to speak and Moses said, but I don't speak very well. I, I can't do that. And God said, okay, we'll use Aaron, your, your shadow, your, your, your relative here. We'll let him be the speaker. And uh, so look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 15, and what it says. God said to him, he says, you will talk to him. He's talking about you will talk to Aaron, giving him the words to say, and I will help both of you to speak clearly, and I will tell you what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people and you will be as God to him, telling him what that he is to say. 
In other words, God said, I'm going to tell you, Moses, what I want you to tell the people, and you're going to tell Aaron, and then Aaron's going to tell the people. And that's the way that I'm going to speak to the people because I want them to have my word. God wanted to use him as a prophet. And uh, there were many, many prophets in the Old Testament. God authored his word, and he affirmed the authority of his word through the prophets. But probably the greatest, and, and I'm pretty sure of this, the greatest reason Scripture uh, has divine authority is because Jesus accomplished everything that the Scripture set out to accomplish. God sent his one and only Son, and he came to fulfill and to complete Scripture. And when you look at the life of Jesus, he lived by the Scripture, and never one time as he attempted to live by it, did he fail in any way. He first fulfilled all the moral law of God. You know, God set up the moral law as the foundational code. Without moral law, man has no spiritual compass. The Ten Commandments, again, were never sent to save anybody, but they were to show us just how sinful we really are. They were there to show us how how far, how far we fall short in our relationship with God and in our relationship with fellow man. Jesus is the only person that attempted to live by the law of God that did not fail in that attempt. I, I know I tried to live by the Ten Commandments when I was growing up as a teenager. And I utterly messed it up. You, you can't do it. It's hard. Jesus was, uh, was tempted like all of us. He obeyed every commandment. He met every requirement of the law. He lived by all the standards that God put before him. He was tempted just like we are, and yet he chose to live his life as a living sacrifice, dying to himself and living unto God. He literally died to any earthly desire that he might have been tempted with. And folks, that's something, if you're honest, that's something we have a pretty hard time doing. Our desires get the best of us, don't they? This world is pretty addictive and it's pretty appealing. And, and the things that God wants us to do, sometimes we have a hard time doing. And the things that he doesn't want us to do, we're tempted to do. And so often we fall prey to our own desires and, and to the temptation that's put before us. Kind of like the story of the chicken and the pig. And I know you've heard this story. They were both walking down the street one day and they passed a grocery store. And in the window was this very nice sign. It said, bacon and egg, desperately needed. Well, the chicken looked at the pig and said, you know, I'll give the eggs if you'll give the bacon. Well, the pig looked real sternly at the chicken and said, no way. Chicken says, why not? And the pig quickly answered, it's because. For you, that's just a contribution. But for me, it's my life. I'd have to give up everything. You know, I'm afraid that there are way too many Christians that are willing to give God an egg every now and then. And when we give that egg, we think we've given enough. But you got to wonder why God isn't being miraculous in our lives, showing up miraculously in our lives. I think it's because, you know, uh, we, we're, we've been called as kingdom people to, to be a, a living sacrifice for the Lord. And sometimes we put ourselves on the altar. But oftentimes we crawl off, don't we? Sometimes we don't even want to put ourselves on the altar. But he calls us to live that kind of life. 
That's exactly what God is calling us to do, is to live our lives as a living sacrifice. To, to do that is to die, to die literally to the desires of ourself. He calls us to sacrifice, and, and a sacrifice really is nothing more than a dead thing. It's something that's dead. So literally, we're to be living dead things. We're not called to die in the physical sense, but we're called to die in the spiritual sense in that we choose to live the kind of life that God wants us to live, which pleases him and not self. That's the way Jesus lived. That's how he lived his life. And that's how he wants us to live our lives. He, he kept the moral law of God by desiring to please God with all his heart. He even kept the, the judicial law. He fulfilled every dot and tittle of the judicial law. That judicial law of God was given to the nation of Israel to uniquely identify them as the one nation that belonged to Yahweh God. It set them apart from everybody else. This Judicial law regulated how they farmed, how they planted, how they tended their farm, how they harvested. It regulated how they would uh, settle disputes among each other. It directed how they would uh, set up their diet, how they would dress, how they would uh, uh, hold standards for personal cleanliness. This judicial law set up the framework of of how God's people were to live before him, but also uh, apart from the rest of the world, it literally set standards, special standards for Jewish life. Well, when Jesus came, he set the supreme standard for how he was to live and also how we're to live. <clears throat> Jesus literally fulfilled the Jewish or the judicial law on the cross. And, you know, you say, well, how did that happen? Well, his crucifixion by the Jews marked Israel's ultimate apostasy in their final rejection of God's Messiah. And it also exposed what God was doing with the Jewish nation. God had been um, upset with them for a long time because they had not been living in a way that was close to him. And with this crucifixion that took place, the judicial law ended because Israel no longer served as his chosen nation. Think about that. God had called them out of Egypt. He set them up as his chosen people. He promised to send the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected God. And so that judicial law ended. And, uh, you know, you could think, well, what, what about the nation of Israel today? Are they still his chosen nation? Well, I believe that God still has his hand on that nation. <clears throat> he still has his hand on those people. And I believe one day that God is going to bless them and, and raise them back up. But notice this warning that Jesus gave before his crucifixion. Matthew 21, verse 43. Jesus said, what I mean is that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Praise God, there's going to be a day when the nation of Israel is going to be redeemed and restored. Revelation 7, 4 even talks about that. John writes, and I heard how many were marked with the, the seal of God. There were 144,000 who were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. That's, that's a future event. That's going to happen sometime during the tribulation when, when there's going to be a, 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 a mass evangelist, 
effort by Jewish people who are saved to know the Lord. But right now, there, there, there's just a remnant of Jews that believe in the Lord. A lot of Jews today reject the Messiah even to this point. And right now, the church has replaced, I believe, the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. Only true believers make up the people of God, and that's who we are. We are the real church. We're, we're redeemed by the Savior because we put our trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he did at the cross. We are his chosen people. Here, here's how I know this. Look with me at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> he says, and the scripture also says, he, and he's referring to Jesus Christ, he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that will make them fall. And they stumble because they do not listen to God's word or obey it. And so they meet the fate that has been planned for them. But you're not like that. And he's talking to the church. He said, for you are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation, his very own possession, that is, so you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Look at verse 10, what he said. He said, once you were not a people, and he's speaking to us, the Gentiles, anybody that was non-Jewish, he said, once you were not a people, but now, for those of you that are saved, you are the people of God. Once you received none of God's mercy, but now you have received his mercy. And praise God we have. Praise God. Jesus made all of that happen through the cross. You see, he has fulfilled moral law. He has fulfilled the judicial law. He has even completely fulfilled the ceremonial law. Well, that takes us into another realm all itself. You see, the Jews used ceremonial law to govern how they worship God. Uh, the practice of sacrificing animals was the major part of their form of worship. Every year, Thousands upon thousands of sheep and goats and, and bulls were, were slain and then burned on the altars as a dedication to God. And, and it was that ceremonial law that dictated how all that was to happen. We come to worship and we, we don't even bring animals with us. Now some people do, but we won't, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> But that was their worship, bringing those animals before God and slaying them. And I mean, their, their animal, the, the, sacrificing those animals was at the heart of their worship. That's how they worshiped God. Thousands upon thousands of animals, their throat was cut and, and their, their blood was drained. And then they were put on altars and they were literally burned as a sacrifice to the Lord. About 20 years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Israel and I stood on that, that sacred ground, which is the place where the temple once stood. It was the very place where Abraham, Abraham, uh, it was Mount Moriah. It was a place where Abraham had uh, taken Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice to God. It was a place that David bought. It was that piece of property that David bought to, to build a temple on. And it was a place where Solomon, his son, actually built the temple. And I remember standing on top of that mound. Now it's under the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim temple. And uh, there's this glassed area encasing 
the, the peak of Mount Moriah. And we walked in, there's a little door you can go in, and when you walk in, you see kind of like a little indention, and there's a, there's a hole in the ground. It's, it's about this big, it's round. And you got to understand that this is solid rock. This isn't like that dirt out there. This is rock. But in that rock, there is a hole cut out that goes down. It's like, it's like a shaft, and Dr. Lee was with me. He was my Old Testament professor. And I said, Dr. Lee, what in the world is that for? And he said, well, son, scholars believe that that is where they poured all of the excess blood from all the animals that were slain. You see, they would take just a little bit of the blood from each animal and use that ceremonially as, as, as a part of their worship. But then they had all that other blood to dispose of and they would pour it down that shaft and that shaft would go out into the valley and it would kind of go to a garbage dump and they would pour all the rest of that blood out. You and I have no idea how many gallons and gallons of blood was slain every year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But that was a practice, I mean... How do you do that week after week? I have fun when I come and worship here. But to worship like that where you're just, you're just cutting throats and draining blood, it was not a pretty thing. It probably didn't smell very good either. Folks, Jesus was the only perfect sacrifice that was ever offered. None of his blood was wasted. Every drop counted. Every drop mattered. Every drop made a difference. And the beautiful thing about the, the sacrifice that Jesus made of his own life was that he put a, an end to the practice of all this sacrificial animals being slain. Once and for all, that all ended. Matthew 27, 50 says that as Jesus hung there on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice and he died. And then the curtain in the temple was torn into two pieces from the top to the bottom. And also the earth shook and the rocks were broken apart. Do you want to know why that happened? Simply because Jesus brought in, he ushered in, as he offered himself, he brought in a new way and a perfect way to come into the presence of God. That curtain kept people from coming into the presence of God. Only the, only the high priest could go behind that curtain and only once a year. But when Jesus died, that, that curtain was, was torn from top to bottom, allowing us to be able to come into the presence of God today. And it's all done by faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who makes things right with God. We don't come into the presence of God by, by trusting in membership or by baptism. We come by, by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what Scripture says. Look at what Hebrews 10 says, verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Because of the blood of Jesus. This is the new life-giving way that Christ has opened up for us through the sacred curtain by means of his death for us. 
And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's people, let us go right into the presence of God with with true hearts, fully trusting him. For our evil conscience has been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. All of those sacrifices, those Old Testament sacrifices, were merely a symbolic picture of what Christ was going to accomplish at the cross. They could not do what Jesus did. Hebrews 9 verse 8 says, But these regulations of the Holy Spirit revealed that the most holy place was not open to people as long as the first room and the entire system it represents were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and the sacrifices that the priest offered are not able to cleanse uh, cleanse the conscience of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and ritual washing. Notice the external, external regulations that are in effect only until their limitation can be corrected. Notice verse 11. It says, For Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that great and perfect sanctuary in heaven, not made by human hands and not part of this created world. Once for all time, he took the blood into he took blood into the most holy place, but not the blood of goats or calves. He took his own blood, and with it he secured our salvation forever. Praise God. Praise God. He did what we could not do. Folks, Jesus was different. He was very different. He brought a new way to know God and belong to God. And yes, he was so radically different. He was very different from Aaron, who was the high priest, the very first high priest they ever had. You see, Aaron only entered the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus, he went into the heavenly. Aaron could only enter once a year, but Jesus went once for all times. Aaron went behind the veil, but Jesus tore the veil in two. Aaron offered thousands upon thousands of sacrifices, but Jesus only offered one. Aaron had to sacrifice for his own sin, whereas Jesus sacrificed for the sins of the world. Aaron offered the blood of animals, but Jesus shed his own blood. Aaron's ministry as a a priest was temporary, but Jesus is our eternal high priest. Aaron was fallible. He was changeable. He was continual, but Jesus is infallible, unchangeable, and he's final. Aaron's, uh, all of Aaron's sacrifices were imperfect, and his priesthood was insufficient. But Jesus, he was a perfect sacrifice, and he is all sufficient. Not only, uh, not even the tabernacle nor the temple, uh, as great as they were compared to what Jesus was, when you look at the schematics of how those how that tabernacle and temple was built, there were many doors that you could enter through. Friends, Jesus is the only door to God. There were bronze altars there in the tabernacle and temple, but Jesus is that true altar. There was a large basin of water for you to wash in and to get yourself ritually clean before you offered sacrifices, but Jesus is what cleanses us from all of our sins. 
They had lamps that always needed to be refilled with oil, but Jesus is the light of God that shines eternally. There was sacrificial bread that had to be replenished, but Jesus is the eternal bread of heaven. They both had mercy seats. Friends, Jesus is our mercy. He is our grace. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. And everywhere you look in that New Testament, it tells us that the law that God gave could make no man right with God. But then Jesus came to do what the law was never meant to do. He came to remove our sin. And he came to make us acceptable to God. I love this passage of Scripture, Galatians 3.24, where Paul says, let me put it another way. He said the law was our guardian and, and teacher to lead us until Christ came. So now through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. But now that faith in Christ has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I would say that you are if you trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Again, the law was never meant to make us right with God. It was there to point us to who is righteous and what is righteous. The Bible says that Jesus is the righteous one. He's the only one that ever tried to live by the Ten Commandments that didn't break them. The only one. And he is the righteous one, he's the one that can make us right with God if we trust him. If we trust him as our Lord and Savior, he will give us his righteousness and make us acceptable to God. You know, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I want to be right with God. I know that one day I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and give account for everything I've ever done. And I long to hear the Lord say, a good job, well done, come in, my son. But you know, I remember being a teenager. I know that's a long time ago, and for some of you that's hard to remember back that far. But I, I remember as a teenager struggling to live right. And it seemed like every time I turned around I was making a bad decision. And as a teenager there were some things in my life that just didn't need to be there. And I was trying my best to stop doing some of the things I was doing. Any of y'all ever been there? You're not, you're not being honest with me, are you? Amen. You know, I, I tried. And I, and I had this kind of a process that I went through trying to figure it out. I, I, I remember the struggle I had. I, I first just tried to quit sinning. I thought if I could quit sinning, then, then I'd be okay with God. But then I found out I couldn't quit sinning. Oh, you can clean your act up for a little while, can't you? But it's not long before you're right back doing what you were doing before. I, I tried to stop, but I couldn't stop. Uh, I, I've never told anybody this. And I don't even know where I got the idea, but but as a 14-year-old boy, I was just trying to be right with God. So you know what I did? I carved myself a little idol. It kind of looked like one of those little tiki idols. And I put a hole in it and put, a, put it on a piece of leather, and I, I wore it around my neck. I thought, maybe that'll make me right with God. He didn't help either. 
So somebody invited me to church and I, I started going to church and I thought that was going to fix things. And, and I started going to Sunday school and I thought that was going to fix things. And I was still struggling with sin. See, just because you go to church doesn't mean you, you, you don't sin. Amen. I, uh, I even started carrying a Bible. But I carried it like a rabbit's foot. Yeah. Oh, I thought if I carried my Bible, nothing bad was going to happen to me. I didn't know what it said. I flew to New Jersey the year I graduated to buy my grandfather's car. And I would not get on the plane without my Bible. I didn't know what it said. But I thought if I had it with me, that was the first time I'd ever flown. I was scared. You ever been there? But I thought if I had, the, if I had God's word, it was going to get me there safe. And if I put it in the car, then I could drive back home and I'd be okay. Like a rabbit's foot. Oh, by the way, when I was going to Sunday school, one of our Sunday school teachers talked to us about the Ten Commandments. And I thought, well, shoot, I can do this. I'll just write them down, make me a list. And, and, and you know, if, if I can go through life and I don't break over half of them, then, then God's going to look at me and I'm going to be better than I am bad. And so he'll let me in. But I watched that list. <laughs> and finally, one day in Sunday school, the teacher said, you know, the Bible says that if you break one, you're as guilty as if you broke them all. I threw that piece of paper away because I could not keep the Ten Commandments. I thought if I could, they'd save me. And I found out that all they did really was expose my sin because I am a sinful being just like you are. God gave us his law because he loves us and he wants us to be right with him, amen? He wants us to be right with him. You know, I tried all kind of stuff to be right with God. The only thing that ever worked was asking Jesus to forgive my sin and save my soul. And I invited him into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. And I remember the night that he came in. I'm a life changed because of faith in Christ. Not because of anything that I could do to merit salvation or to get myself right with God because I'm just like you. I struggle with living a straight life. And it's only when I let him rule in my life and him be the ruler of my life that I can please him. Where are you today in being right with God? I know I can look at you and you can kind of smile at me and Give me that look like everything's okay in here, preacher. But I've been there. And I know that things aren't always okay inside. There are those times in our life where we're just not right with God. And we're struggling. But you don't have to struggle if you'll put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you'll know Him and trust Him He'll help make things right between you and God.
Amen. I want us to bow our heads this morning. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't do this every week, but I'm going to do it today. If you're struggling with being right with God, every head bowed, please, and every eye closed. If you're struggling at being right with God, there's no need for that. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is one of my favorite verses. Why? Because it's probably the one that I've claimed and used more than any other in the Bible. We need God's mercy. We need God's grace. We need the righteousness that Jesus has applied to our life so that we can be acceptable to God. This morning, if you have a need to be right with God in your heart, I encourage you, I encourage you to make the decision to trust the Lord and ask Him to help you be right. There's nobody that can make you right with God but Jesus. But there's nobody that Jesus can't make right with God. It all depends on your decision, the choice you make. If you choose to, to trust Him today, He can help you. If you choose not to, you'll go away just like you are. And there's no need in that. Father, I pray today just for a little simple answer to prayers. Lord, please help all of us to be right in our heart with you today. Father, your word says that you'll forgive our sin and you'll make us right. Right with you and right with those people around us. We all need that, Lord. Desperately, we need that. You made a way through your son, Jesus. Help us to trust him. Help us to focus on him. And help us, Lord, to desire to be clean before you. Lord, do your work right now, I pray. Accomplish the things that you desire in each of us. Help us to be more like you when we leave. I pray this in Jesus' name.